When I say that God is absolute, I mean that He is the supreme being in all of existence, that He stands before and beyond anything else, and everything else is dependent upon Him. Last week we saw, okay, there is a God. This is really diving into the definition of what it means to be God. And there's a couple aspects to this, and they all build upon one another. And the first thing I want to point out as we look at this is that God is self-existent. This is very important for us to understand. God not only exists, we believe that, but he exists by definition. That is, to be God, for him to be God is to be the source of his own existence. Everything else in the whole world, a little philosophy here, everything else in the whole world has contingent existence. That means your existence is dependent on something else. You came into existence because of your mother and father, and they because of their mother and father going all the way back. Even if you didn't have a mother and father, you are contingently existent upon the atmosphere of the earth that you can survive. You're dependent upon food. You're dependent upon water and oxygen. The universe itself is dependent. If the laws of physics stopped working for half a second, it would entirely collapse. And there are even some scientists that I've read that study some of these fundamental laws of nature and they look at them and they go, this shouldn't work. <laughs> why do the atoms hold together? We know that they do, but why do they hold together? Why do magnets attract? Why is there gravity? It's there, we can describe it, but why? It's all contingent existence. God's existence is not contingent upon anything. He must exist or nothing else could exist. This is why that question, well, who made God? That is a foolish question. Because if God was made, he would not be God. The very word God, as we understand it, means to be unmade. That he is that uncaused cause, as some people have called him. And if there was something that could create God, then that thing would be greater than God, and you'd have to move the definition up a level. Whether that's another mind or another existing being that created God, well, then that thing is God, not the thing that was just created. And if there was a world that all of the laws and the particles swirled together and produced a mass amazing consciousness, that wouldn't be God because the universe that made it come into existence, that would be God. And we would be pantheists, I suppose. Nor is it the idea that, well, the whole, <laughs> I've heard this one, this is a very weird but common one that I hear now, is when all of our consciences are connected through the internet and it's all brought together, then there, that mind, that artificial intelligence will essentially be God. No, it won't because it came from something. And if you unplugged the computer, it wouldn't exist anymore. So God's existence is not contingent. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, like as sophisticated as that is, and it really is, it comes from the burning bush story. All the way back in the beginning, it says that when Moses said to God, God is speaking out of the burning bush, he tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. That's the Hebrew word as it's pronounced, 
Adonai. That's not what the word says. The word Adonai in Hebrew means Lord. And whenever they come across the name of God, I am, in the Old Testament, they say Lord because it's out of respect for the name of God. And it's what's called the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name. That's what tetragrammaton means, four letters. Y-H-V-H in Hebrew. And that's been rendered as Jehovah. It's been rendered as Yahweh. It's that name. That name means I am. And it is used as the name of God over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. That God is. That's his name. I am. That's why a lot of those passages you see in the Old Testament where it says, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. If you want to just get right down to what the translation says, and then they shall know that I am. It says, you're going to know who I am. And it's always going back to what God told Moses. His name was that God defined himself, gave the name to himself as the one who exists, the one who is. This is so important because that is such a deep, profound understanding of the definition of God. It shouldn't be in, as the world understands it, some old-fashioned parochial primitive book that was written. Back then, everybody else, all the other religions, they believed that there was some giant that died and all of the gods crawled out of his brain and then they created the world out of the god's bones. And that, that's what everybody else was coming up with. Or that God crawled out of the water somewhere. And then here's God speaking to Moses in the midst of all that. And he says, I am. I am self-existent. That is an incredibly profound theological idea, apparently, dropped into the middle of the desert. It's one reason among many others why we believe that this is in fact what God said. Because it is so far beyond its time. And it still is in a lot of ways. The nature of God is to be. He exists. We begin and we end. God did not begin and he never will end. Jesus said in John 5, 26, the father has life in himself. You do not have life in yourself. You are counting on God to grant you eternal life. God has that within himself. Before creation, this is so key, we need to get this. Before creation, before space, before time, before the edges of the universe, all that existed was God. So in that sense, God is the fundamental reality. All other reality, everything that, that exists besides God, came from him by an act of his will. So before the Lord said, let there be light, before the Lord created the heavens and the earth, all that there was, was him. And if you can understand that, then it will head off at the pass a lot of troubling questions. Well, was God floating in space? No, there was no space to float in until he created it. That's what it means to be God. So well, that doesn't make any sense. How could somebody exist without a world to exist in? That's called God. That's what that word means. You can't take some Greek idea of the little g gods and try and import that into what the Bible says because it wouldn't make any sense. You have to take the Bible for what it says. In Acts 17, 28, Paul said that in him we live and move and have our being. John 1, verses 3 through 4, John wrote, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. God exists apart from the cosmos. He is outside of its definition. So when Carl Sagan, the cosmos is all that there is, and all that there ever was, and all that there ever will be. Wrong. God exists, and God created the cosmos, the world. And when you know that about God, it kind of 
prevents us from saying, well, then how could, how could he be so powerful as to make a world? It's like the world came from God. God is greater than the world because he made it. How can God do miracles? Because he made the world so he can mess with stuff if he wants to mess with stuff. And they also can start to answer our questions about morality. Moving into the second thing here, if we know that God is self-existent, it can start to answer some questions about right and wrong. There's something called the Euthyphro Dilemma. And Euthyphro was just the name of the guy that came up with it. This is a, a question that was asked to Plato, the philosopher back in the day. And the question is, is good good because it is good on its own? Or is it good because God said that it was good? For example, God said, thou shalt not kill. Did God say that because it is wrong to kill? Or is it wrong to kill because God said that? And Plato wrote this whole thing answering that question. But as Christians, we know that that is a bad question. It's not wrong to ask, but it's poorly framed. It's a false dilemma. God did not do either of those things. God is self-existent. So we define good by what we would say, what is godly. Whatever is like God is good. Whatever is in harmony with God and his nature and his character is good. You could define good as being in alignment with God and his will. This is why we say that God is holy. To be holy means to be separate. Right? They would talk about how the plates in the tabernacle were holy. They weren't righteous. They were separate from other plates. The showbread was just bread. But it was special. It was separated from the rest of the loaves of bread they would make. And the same way, God is separate from us. And that then has moral implications because God's righteousness is perfect. We measure what is right and wrong by who God is. And these two things are tied together. Because if we know that God is entirely separate and we measure what is right or wrong by how we measure up to God... When you stand before God and you don't measure up, that's a fearful thing. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah shows up and I have a fresh appreciation after reading it today of the, the way this story is set up. Because Isaiah sees the Lord enthroned in the temple and he sees these angels that have six wings and four faces and the most outrageous thing he's ever seen in his life. And these outrageous, strange creatures are shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Those things, which if we were to look at them and say, that is something that is holy and separate and different from us. But even they recognize the holiness of God. And he was so distraught because he knows, I can't stand in the presence of God. If those things are constantly offering worship to God, how can I be here? And it required the angel to come and cleanse his lips, remember, with the coal from the altar so that he could be in God's presence. So to be right, to be good, is to be godly, to be like God. Then the question becomes, well, then what is evil? Evil is a deviation from who God is and how God created his world. Sin is acting contrary to the perfect will of a holy God. Anything that is not like God is not good. And if you understand that God was all that existed before the world came into being, then anything that is not like him is wrong. It's not supposed to be there. It should not be. God is no liar. And when people began to lie, it's going against the very fabric of existence because that's how God made it. And that's why we have sin. Every sin is a perversion of something that is good. 
Adultery is a perversion of proper sexuality within marriage. Murder can be a perversion of a lot of different things, a perversion of strength, a perversion of wanting to defend loved ones, a perversion of standing up for yourself, you could say. Gluttony is a perversion of normal, natural nourishment that God gave us. That's what sin is. 1 John 3 verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. If you have God's DNA, there's no sin there, because God is completely without sin. This is also why we understand that what is sinful and what is evil is weaker. It's a shadow. It's not as strong. It's not even real with a capital R in the way that God is real and the way that things are in alignment with God are real. And this is also why there's an element of fear to holiness because God is absolutely good. And to be like Isaiah and face that is a terrifying thing. That God who has always existed, who really is existence in that sense, and then he created a world, and then to go against that, and then to come face to face with him, that's a terrifying thing. And this is why many people have taken God's definition and brought it down a few notches to where they can understand it, to where they can relate to it, to where he's not as intimidating this time. And this brings us into the third thing I want to mention is that God is worthy of worship, obviously. If God is good and God is self-existent. He is worthy of praise and adoration and obedience. When people do wonderful, honorable things, we praise them. We award them. We give them parades. We give them medals. We just say, hey, great job. I really appreciate you. Thank you. He's worthy of obedience. Any time there's been some strong, great leader who's been good and who's been honest, people are ready to follow that guy. We'll go wherever you go because you're somebody we can follow. Well, God is that greater than you could ever imagine. So he's worthy of worship. This is his world. And he's created us to live in it in worship and obedience to him. In heaven, Revelation 4 verse 11, they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That's important too, by the way, that it says, by your will, they existed. This isn't some Gnostic thing where God is just so wonderful that universes just spin off of him without him even thinking about it. And it's not some Hindu thing where God fell asleep and we're his dream. That's one idea that they have. No, by an act of his will, God created. And that's so much more like robust and sophisticated than, you know, God fell asleep and maybe we're his dream. No, no, no. That sounds really poetic maybe, but it's not very realistic. From the very beginning, God has been worshipped by his creation. God's been receiving worship since before sin existed. And even right after that, it's amazing to me that when Adam and Eve left the garden, even Cain, who was a rotten dude, knew to come and bring sacrifices to God. He didn't honor God. He didn't care about God. But he knew who God was. And he knew who he was. And he's like, I'm not messing around with this guy. Of course, he let his jealousy get the better of him, but that's not the point we're making right now. And I think it's important for us to catch that, by the way, because we can tend to puff ourselves up and think that we've moved on from primitive, old-fashioned worship of some god in the sky. No, that's exactly what we are. We are, in some ways, the last holdouts in a culture and a world that has said, we're too smart for all that. 
And in one sense, okay, yeah, the Druids had some really dumb things that they believed in. It was good for us to get rid of that. But the Lord is not like that. This is the truth. And we do worship him. And I don't like it when the church tries to dress itself up to be something other than that. Other than a house of worship and discipleship to the Lord. And when you look at the world's mythologies and philosophies, and the way they describe God, he be, or the gods, they can't even handle one, they have to have more, to be petty and sinful and limited and able to be explained. They've made God like them. And this is an abominable thing, to reduce God to somebody who is just like me. If anything, you are like God, but God is not just like you. If you've read any of the Norse mythologies or if you've heard any of the legends of the Greek and Roman gods, these are gods no one would want to worship. No, who wants to be like them? They're, they're full of pride and they're full of lust and they're capricious and they just fight and squabble with one another. And when you understand what the Bible teaches that these are demons that have usurped God's authority, all of a sudden it starts to make a lot more sense. It's like, ah, that sounds like Satan. That doesn't sound like the Lord. And this is why a lot of the smartest people in these cultures looked at these stories and said, God can't be like that. There's no way. And you know, these false religions, these false acts of worship, this idolatry, this is driven in a lot of ways by the Lord's enemies, by God's other creation. We're his physical material creation. He also has a spiritual, invisible creation. And unfortunately, many of them are also in rebellion against the Lord in the same way we are. And they're jealous and they want to usurp the authority that God has. They want to be like God. They want glory. They want power. They want stories written about them. They want people offering sacrifices to them. This is where idolatry comes from. We have our own sinful tendencies, but it's fired up by these spirits, these demons, as we would call them, that are helping us along, or hurting us rather. This is from Deuteronomy. The Lord is reminding the children of Israel of what they did before he brings them into the promised land. He said, you grew fat and you kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then you forsook God who made you and scoffed at the rock of your salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord is saying, why would you go after these things and worship them? You forgot me. You scoffed at me, the one that brought you out of Egypt. And you scoffed and started to worship these petty little spirits. And you know, this is something I did want to talk about, and maybe it is a bit of a focusing on a side issue in this whole topic, but we're so quick to glamorize and to idealize the false religions that the world has. You know, and, and look at it as if we're missing something. To say, oh, well... Those gods brought that culture up and they raised them up to a place where they were writing philosophy and they were so smart and they were so great. And these stories are still helpful and instructive for us today. And we ought, we ought to remember them and, and maintain this. And it's part of our culture. And that's not good. We could even start to import its assumptions into the church. 
you know, it's very dangerous, but you hear this where you'll hear a Christian speaker or a songwriter or even a pastor sometimes, and I don't know that they do this on purpose to deliberately deceive, but they'll unknowingly bring in some thought or some idea that is not from the Lord and leads to some very terrible places. And you know, when we begin to bring God down, that's when the world starts to mock. When you describe God as the self-existent one that has always been and is perfectly good and perfectly just and perfectly righteous, that's someone that people have to contend with. You have to answer that. And it stares you right in the face and you have to deal with that reality. But when you start to bring God down and he's just like you, and you know, God is somebody that you can, I don't know, lie to and negotiate with. And, and God's just, he's just one of us and he's my buddy and he helps me out. And you use him as an excuse for all of your carnality. Smart people look at that and say, why would I want anything to do with that? And you brought God down to a level where people can mock him instead of holding him up to a place where nobody would dare. And I think this happens for a couple reasons. I think number one, what you're doing is, you're, you're taking humanity and creation, and we elevate that to the place of godhood. And that's what a lot of world's religions really are, is worship of the self, worship of creation, and lifting that up and bowing down to it. That's why all these gods, they're in the forms of animals, and they're, they're just explaining to us how best to live our lives. And like, so your entire concept of God is, is to reflect you and how you ought to be? That's a sad thing. And I think the second thing that we do, what that does, is it denies that God is sufficient to help us or satisfy us. This happened all the time in the Old Testament. There's a passage in Jeremiah where the Lord tells Jeremiah to stop praying for the people. And he says, do you not see what they are doing? He says, they're going up onto the, to the roof and they're looking up to the stars and they're asking questions of the host of heaven and they're pouring out drink offerings to other gods and they're all making these little cakes and offering them to, it says, the queen of heaven. He says, look what they're doing. And they were still trying to say they were worshiping the Lord, still coming to temple, still making their sacrifices, which is why Jeremiah would go to the temple and preach to them and say, you guys, you're, you're bringing all this extra stuff in. They would worship in the high places. They would offer their children up as sacrifices. They would go to the groves and there would be all kinds of sexual immorality that would happen there. And the Lord would always ask these questions. What have I done to you? What have I not given you? What have I not provided for you that you feel the need to go after these things? And you know, some Christians are comfortable with doing the same thing with what you could call borrowed spirituality. I think part of the problem is if you take this grand, splendid definition of who God is and you bring him down, and you take the requirements that God places on you and you strip them away where there's really not much required of you. And you take this entire religion of discipleship and suffering and you bring it to, hey, you're going to feel better once every Sunday. People are going to start to hunger for something more. And the more you water it down, the more people aren't going to be fed. So that's when they start to say, what does Buddhism have to offer? They seem pretty spiritual. What, what are those Hindus doing over there? Because, you know, it all looks very mysterious and really wonderful. And by the way, in case you didn't know this, a lot of that Buddhist and Hindu stuff that seems so attractive to us and is so colorful and so wonderful, that is done deliberately to dupe Americans and other Westerners to come and give money to these places. I go to Nepal and you see these Americans getting on this plane and they're going up to hike into these mountains and kill animals and sacrifice to these gods up on top of a mountain so that they can taste something spiritual. 
This is why I love our missionary over there, Nanda, because he'll talk to these people and says, you come from a place where you can know Jesus. There are churches everywhere. Why would you come here? Don't you see what's happening? Our gods aren't doing anything for us. You know, I, I even have a friend who went to another Christian's house and walked in the door and there was this altar with spell books and crystals and all this stuff set up and they said yeah we're christians but you know our families has always been really into this witchcraft and and magic and spells and potions and things and you know when you get sick it helps you out and if you're having a bad day you take this thing with you and it's a good luck charm and it's like why do you think that you can take the lord's truth and blend that with something from that is so wicked first corinthians 10 20 calls these things fellowship with demons like we have communion and fellowship with the Lord when we share the bread and the cup together. When you bring all that stuff in, you're having communion with demons, Paul says. How many Christians are comfortable consulting astrologers, which the Lord explicitly forbids us to do? Or say, you know what, Th that psychic might have something to say. And this is, this is what makes you think of, of the passages in the Bible where they say, is there no God in Israel? Remember when the king was sending people to go and inquire of Beelzebub? But you know what that means? You know that word. You know what that literally means? The Lord of the flies. Go inquire of the Lord of the flies and see if I'm going to die. And then Elijah stops them and says, where do you think you're going? Well, we're going to go inquire of the temple of Beelzebub. He says, is there no God in Israel that you can't come talk to me? And I feel the Lord says the same thing to us. Don't you know who I am? Do you need to try and figure out what the stars say to tell you what's going to happen? Don't you know I've already got your future in my hands? You want to go and talk to somebody who thinks they can talk to the dead? I'm the God in heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you, the scriptures say. Why do we want to get involved in this other stuff or try and get into this ma magical things that will help us to manipulate and change the future? God's like, I've given you access to come and seek and ask and receive from me. Why do we need all this other stuff? It all springs from a shallow understanding of God. And the prophets would compare that attitude to an adulterous woman who has a wonderful husband, who takes good care of her, who's never denied her anything and has loved her well and had children with her, but she has wandering eyes. And he says, you go, and the Bible uses some incredibly graphic descriptions to describe the way Israel, what, what's over there? What's this God got to offer? You know, they worship him and they're doing really well. Let's bring in Baal. Let's bring in Asher. Let's see what Moloch can do for us. Let's bow down to Dagon. And the Lord would remind them, it's wood, it's gold, it's silver, it's stone. And you're going to bow down and worship that when I'm seated in the heavens, I'm right here with you. Is God not enough? Am I not worthy of your worship? And yes, he is, isn't he? Because God is absolute. He is enthroned in the heavens, heavens that he created perfect in his holiness. We are limited. We are dependent. We're dependent upon him. And for us to go and look elsewhere for solutions from other limited beings, from other limited ideas, from other limited people, and say, that's what's going to save me. That's what's going to help me. It's foolishness, especially when you consider what it cost the Lord to reconcile us to himself, to bring us back when you know that God, in his splendor, in his glory, in his holiness, has knelt down and took us by the hand and lifted us up and said, come with me. Come sit at my right hand. Come sit at my banqueting table. Watch me anoint your head with oil in the presence of your enemies. 
because God is good. God is the absolute God. That's what I want us to grasp tonight. That the Lord alone is God. And He is exalted so high above the world that we, when we understand who He really is, there's no need for all this other stuff. There's no need for other solutions and other helps. We have the Lord in heaven. You know, you, you see the book of Exodus in a lot of ways. You could see that story as the Lord versus other stuff. The Lord versus the God of the Nile River. And the Lord turned the river to blood. The Lord versus the frog God. You want frogs? I'll give you frogs. I'll give you frogs so they're coming out of your ears. The God of the sun, and the Lord blots out the sun. The Lord of the wind and the rain, and the Lord sent fiery hailstones down. The Lord of cows, and the Lord of, of sheep, and the Lord of oxen, and the Lord struck them all with sickness. These priests that thought they could bring healing to these people, and the Lord struck them with boils. What was the Lord doing? He was asserting His authority over the whole world. And that's what the Lord did with Jesus Christ, that He made a mockery of all the principalities and powers, putting them to open shame, and he nailed the requirements of our lives to the cross. Every debt that was against us, the Lord said, I'm going to put that on the cross. And the blood of Jesus ran down and wiped it all out so there was nothing left to be read anymore. Praise the Lord.